Thank you. Um, I'm not going to subject you all to my slides. <laughs> so you guys are going to get free from slides. But I do have some questions I want to ask you. But everybody's talking about their healing. I, Jan doesn't even know this. I was, last week, I couldn't move. My back was hurting so bad, I couldn't move. I, and I was going to, it was Thursday night, and I was playing golf Saturday morning, or Thursday, Friday morning. That's, that's my, I walk six miles on the golf course twice a, twice a week. That's what I do. And uh, I said, Lord, if this hurts tomorrow, I won't be able to go. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't even walk hardly. I just, it was just right in the middle of my back. And I said, God, please heal me of this. I don't want I don't want to wake up for that tomorrow morning. And I went to sleep, <laughs> and I didn't I didn't have any pain. I haven't had any pain since. <laughs> That's amazing to me. I mean I I don't know where it came from. Now my, it might have been a word of knowledge, but I didn't know any. I wasn't coming here, and maybe somebody on the golf course. <laughs> so, so anyway, I was uh, I was definitely healed by God. Uh, I've been reading, let me just share with you what I've been reading in, uh, you know, this girl named Ruana uh, is the voice of the prophet, she uh, talks, and I've read a couple of her books. One of them just kind of struck me, if you're going through a tough time, I would say remember Jacob, <laughs> Joseph, Joseph and, and David, they're the ones that went through tough times. So when you're going through a tough time, now I'm not going to argue with you if it's caused by God. God says he doesn't, cause, he doesn't do that in the scriptures, but people like David, was, 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 he was anointed to be the king, and, and then he, uh, he went running, after, running away from the king, didn't like him. So. so he did that for what, 13 years? It was 13 years afterwards that uh, I think he went, uh, he went into the king's, king's uh, kingship, I think, uh, Saul must have died, but David and uh, you know there are just a lot of people in the Bible who go through things. And what Leif Hetland said really, really, uh, and he was one of the speakers of the Voice of the Apostles. And he 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 said if you are going through, if you're going through stuff for years, or for months or whatever, just realize that God's got a lot for you to do. So big push, that's what he says, big push, what's that, baby, big baby, big push, that's the way he says it, and uh, the people that really, the, the, the world changers have time in their life when they go through a lot of things, and through those things, you got to be joyful, Lord, I thank you for what you're doing, I praise your name, and there's a Bible verse that I mentioned in prayer meeting this morning, and that is, Praise God in all circumstances. It doesn't give you an in and out of that. So I believe that God's in charge, and, and everything that happens to me is, uh, is what he wants to happen. <laughs> and so, so if you're going through some stuff, there's a reason for it. Something in your life is causing it to happen. I don't know what it is. God's a lot smarter than we are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, what I'm going to do is we've got the warm-up questions, and then we're going to go with the uh, session seven. There's 12 sessions. Can you all believe that? Session seven is what uh, he's going to talk about today. 
And then the warm-up questions for session eight, I'll have after this uh, video. All right, let me ask you some questions. Why do you think people in today's society find it so difficult to have an attitude of submission? I got a, I got a mic here, Jan. What, why do you find it so difficult to have an attitude of sub submission in our society? I feel the um, the world's definition of submission has always been a negative, and so when you're living day to day and you're around people, you know, like women shouldn't submit to men, you shouldn't submit to this, you should, you know, strive to be higher up in your company, you should do this. It all goes back into that line of authority, and it's if you view submission in the world's view of submission versus the, what the word says, then that's. One of the things I think is entitlement. People think they're entitled to things, you know, and because uh, I'm I'm just entitled to that, you know, and uh, also bringing up that the world has changed, the thinking has changed, people change, and for some reason uh, we've lost respect and honor for one another. Daniel. Um, I can remember when I was in the 50s. <laughs> I was alive in the 50s. <laughs> I can remember over the intercom, the principal said, I want you all to bow your heads. We're going to have a little prayer in the morning. And he prayed. And I remember having an honor that I, that I held the senators and the representatives in great honor. I felt like, wow, they're, they're awesome people. They're running our government. But now you don't get that same thing. And I think a lot of it is probably the news. <laughs> the, news the news media has the devil's workshop. The devil's uh, used the news media for his uh, benefit. think it's, it's more to, to it than that because I think that whatever you, whoever you sit up under, what you behold you become. And I think people are wanting to be sure to a certain extent, who am I submitting myself to? And I just want to say to Pastor Tom, if I may at this point, because I was scared to give, um, but in, when he was absent last Wednesday and left this young fine man in, in place, or you, that how um, I told him that I feel myself connecting to Pastor Tom. I said, Sunday, he got up and said something. And a lot of times we believe, we say we're hearing, but you hear and you hear. And when he began to teach and give something, all of a sudden it was like I was tuned in to what he was really saying. And it amazed me. I'm like, oh my God, I thought I was really hearing him. And I talked to him a little bit the Sunday before back there at the door because I'm trying to find my way and I'm knowing what I need to do. But I just wanted to say to him, 
that I'm sitting here. And when I come, Paul said, know no man after the flesh. So when you submit to people, you can't be looking at them in a fleshly way to see what faults they may have or what they don't. We got to believe like Tom LeVere. I'm learning from that. Tom LeVere said, whoever God put over you, regardless of whether they mistreat you or not, you still got to be submissive. That's right. That's right. Am I right? I Did he say right. that? Yeah, that's what he said. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to, Paul said, don't know no man after the flesh. So we didn't come to judge nobody. We didn't come to do anything. I've come to hear God because I need to hear the voice of God. Because when I first came here, I thought I had it going on. And the only way God can help you is you humble yourself and submit to leadership. And I'm learning this from this teaching what he's giving now that the only way you're going to get it because i'm watching a lot of you all you are humble you're sweet you're kind and it comes from what you're being taught you, you, this not just coming it's coming from what you're being taught i thank the lord he's gotten up he don't throw off on people i've been under that so you ask me why it's hard to submit I've been under that, and that's not what it's about. I love the diversity is here. I mean, so that's my testimony. I just thank the Lord. I enjoyed this young man. He stood so humble, and he taught when he could have got in his flesh and been like this, but I didn't see that. And I said, God, this is what you want us to submit to. And I just wish, and I just want to say, Pastor Tom, I couldn't wait to get here tonight. <laughs> And I thank God for that because you go through, you go through and you go through and you think you have it. But as you keep on, who that say continue to walk and you'll get this thing. So I'm finished, but I just want to say I thank God for this <laughs> thank teaching. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Renee. All right, another question. Let me ask you, I got three questions. In what ways do you see a submission, submission attitude in the life of Christ? How was he submission? How was he submissive? Well, he humbled himself and washed their, their He washed their feet, feet, yeah. Even though he knew that they were going to deny him and turn him in. And well, Peter said, you can't do that to me. <laughs> he also submitted to Caesar. Remember they tried to trap him about yeah. paying the taxes? And he yeah. said, well, who's, you know, whose name is or whose picture is on? He says, so submit to Caesar. What is Caesar's? And so he was in that place. And he was an evil king. Josh, Jason wants to say something. Yeah, it just kind of baffles me even when Jesus just says to the Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Yeah. It's like this is the son of God, like the Messiah saying, not my will, but yours be done. It's like, wow. Right, isn't that something? Okay, list several ways people are sometimes misled to sinning even though they are practicing an attitude of obedience. List several ways people are sometimes misled into sinning even though they are practicing an attitude of obedience. This this is a tough question. List several ways people are sometimes misled into sinning, even though they are practicing an attitude of obedience. Gossiping? Yeah. The Holocaust. All right. Okay. That's true. They were. They were being submission. I see a lot of people in the church who who want to live a good life. I, I, in fact, I've seen a lot of people. <laughs> I've been to church all my life. I've been going to church all my life. But a lot of people really try hard to do well. But they get misled, and they start developing an attitude. 
a, a negative attitude. So I have seen that happen, I, and, and I've, I, I know many people who were on fire for a, for a year, and then they fell off. They fell off the wagon. Isn't that something? They knew what to do. They knew what was right, but they just couldn't do it. Okay, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and let John Bevere talk. Go ahead and play John, and we'll let him talk, and then we'll get down to the next one. Is it possible to be completely right and totally wrong at the same time? How do you respond to and overcome unfair treatment? You're about to discover some principles that can change the entire course of your life. There is nothing we have that God hasn't given. You see, God gave us grace. Submission deals with your attitude. It is easy to obey God when the sun's shining. There is a secret place under the shadow of the Almighty where there is liberty, provision, and protection. The following 12-part teaching series by John Bevere, along with study guide and a copy of John's book, Undercover, exposes the subtle yet rampant tactics the enemy uses to keep you from the promise of protection under his authority. John Bevere Ministries and Nelson Multimedia Group present Undercover. Did you know that the Bible teaches unconditional submission to authorities, but not unconditional obedience? In the following teaching, John Bevere brings clarity to these simple but often misunderstood biblical concepts in Lesson 7, Obedience and Submission. Hebrews chapter 13. Now, I want to say this. This is a very, very important session tonight. <clears throat> submission probably causes the greatest amount of confusion among believers than about anything else I know. I hear questions constantly along this lines. Is obedience unconditional? What if I don't agree with my leader's decision? What if authority makes a bad decision? What if authority tells me to do something wrong? Where do I draw the line? In these next three video sessions, I believe we're going to answer, we will answer every one of these questions because the Word of God has specific wisdom for every one of them. First thing I want to do is I want to talk about the difference between obedience and submission. Hebrews, the 13th chapter, we're going to read from verse 17. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls. So you can see he is obviously, specifically targeting church authority in this scripture. Are you seeing this? As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now isn't it interesting? Who will it be unprofitable for? The leader or will it be unprofitable for you? For you. Isn't that amazing? Now I want to say this again. Even though he's specifically targeting church leaders, this spans the borders as well. But I want you to notice that we are told to do two distinct things in this verse. Number one, we are to obey those who rule over us. And number two, we are to be submissive to those who rule over us. Are you with me? Now this is where many get confused. They lump the word obedience and submission together and there is a difference. 
Now, I want to say this, that we can obey, but not necessarily be submitted. Now, I remember when I first learned this is when I was serving in a very large church in the southern part of the United States as the administrative assistant to the pastor. There were many, many decisions that would go by my desk before that he would make because I reported directly to him and his wife, and it was a staff of about 450 people. And there were many times that I saw things that I just thought were wrong. And, I re and, and let me backtrack just a little bit further. When I first started working for him, I remember the first couple weeks, I had taken a several thousand dollar a year pay cut as an engineer for Rockwell International to go work for this church and made under $20,000 a year. But it was a joy because I remember the first couple weeks, I was sitting in the parking lot picking up groceries for them and crying, thinking, God, why are they paying me? I should be paying them. I was so grateful for the opportunity to be able to serve. And this lasted for about a year, but then the honeymoon started wearing off. And all of a sudden, I started seeing the, the flaws in the personality of the pastor. Now, how many of you know, if you look close enough, you're going to flaw find flaws in anybody? Amen? And I remember I started seeing him make decisions, and I thought, well, you know, this, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. Well, I don't know if he should do that. And, you know, one day God spoke to me. He said, did I put you in that position or him in that position? I said, Lord, you put him in that position. He said, that's right. And he said, I'll show him things that I don't need to show you, and I'll not show you on purpose to see if you'll follow him as he follows me. And then later on, the Lord made this very clear to me. He said, son, if I intended for every believer in the body of Christ to just hear from me, he said, I never would have put authorities in their lives. The very fact that I put authorities in their lives means that I speak to people through those authorities. I developed a negative attitude. I'd been at the church for about four years, or no, actually three and a half years. I'd been the executive administrative assistant. And I went through a time period where for six months, I didn't get anything from what he preached. Now, let me say this. This is one of the greatest preachers in the United States in the 1980s. And I went, I remember when I first started attending the church, I would be in awe with the wisdom of God that would come out of this, the, this man of God's mouth. And I remember this six-month period just thinking constantly, I'm not getting fed. I'm just not being fed. And I remember I was at dinner one night with another couple who worked for the executive staff as well. And the husband worked on the executive staff, and so did I. And the husband and the wife and my wife and I were all sitting around the dinner table going, you know, we're just not getting fed anymore in the church. And they said, you know, we're not getting fed either. And the husband and the wife and myself started going off on this thing, and my wife kept quiet the whole time. And we all looked at each other and we said, you know, we just really believe that God's getting ready to send us off in our own ministries. So that's why we're not being fed. Our time here is coming to a close. And so we all agreed on that and basically finished our meal and had our time together, and I left. Well, a couple days later, I was in prayer, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me in that prayer closet, referring to that night because I'd been making that statement constantly, I'm not being fed. And the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, the problem is not with your pastor, the problem is with you. And I said, well, you know, whenever God brings correction to you, you know, you kind of think, Lord, do you have the right person? <laughs> but you know what I've learned? If we're going to be like Jesus, 
Because the Bible says we're going to be like him, right? We're going to behold him. We're going to see him like who he is, right? right? We're going to be just like him, right? If we're going to be like Jesus when he comes back, then one of us has got to change. It's not going to be him. So what that means is most of the dealings of God in my life are going to be corrected. Good preaching. So the Lord said to me, he said, the problem is not with your pastor, the problem is with you. I said, Lord, what do you mean? And the Lord spoke to me and he said, son, what did I say in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 18 and 19? And I recited the verse back to him. I knew it from memory. I said, it says, if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, son, there's your problem right there. I said, Lord, I am obedient. I do everything I'm told to do. And the Spirit of God spoke to me. He said, I didn't say if you're obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. He said, I said, if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. And he said, willing deals with your attitude, and your attitude stinks. That's exactly what the Spirit of God said to me. He said, I said, if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. He said, the reason you're not being fed is because your attitude stinks. He said, change your attitude with tent. And he said, you'll start being fed. Well, I repented right there in that prayer closet. I remember right where I was. I remember the exact place I was. To this day, I can still see myself praying. And I remember the next Sunday morning, I walked back into that church, same seat, same pastor, same series of messages, same church. Heaven opened up that morning. And all I sit there wanted to do was cry because I kept thinking, what have I missed for six solid months? All because of my attitude. <clears throat> Submission deals with your attitude. Obedience deals with your actions. David said to his son in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9, he said to, you, to him, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. Now, if you look at Hebrews chapter 13 again, it says in the NIV, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. I want to say this. We can be submissive in our attitude and not necessarily obedient. Remember the son that the father came to in the parable that Jesus told. He said, son, go and work in my field. And the son said, sure, dad, I'll do it. But yet he didn't do it. Jesus said he did not obey the will of his father. Now, of course, the other son said, no, I won't do it, but then yet went and did it. And, of course, he did the will of the father. But let me tell you what the father would have loved to have had is a submitted son with a submitted attitude who obeyed his father. That's what God really desires is not only for us to obey, but to have a willing submitted attitude in our obedience. So not only does God say, obey those who rule over you, he also says, submit, submit to those who rule over you. The reason is, is there is a difference. Submission deals with our attitude. Obedience deals with our actions. Now, the question is, where do we draw the line? Where does it finally come to the place that we don't obey an authority? I want to make this statement to you tonight. The Bible teaches unconditional submission. But the Bible does not teach unconditional obedience to authority. There is only one 
time, and I want to emphasize this, one time that we are told not to obey an authority, and that is when authority tells us to do something directly against what is written in the written word of God. That is the only time that we are told not to obey. If your pastor tells you to wear blue socks with purple pants and a pink shirt because up on the choir, if that's what he wants, that's what we're going to wear. And we're going to do it with a happy attitude. There is no sin in wearing blue socks with purple pants and a yellow shirt. Are you with me? Because I have found that 99% of the problems that people have obeying is not when leaders tell them to sin, but just telling them to do things they don't want to do. I said this in an earlier session. I'm going to say it again. Submission does not mean I submit as long as I agree. Submission doesn't even begin until there's disagreement. Only time we're not to obey is when we're told to do something contrary to the written word of God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he was a man that God called his servant. It's another incident that shows us that God appoints all leaders because Nebuchadnezzar was the one who, I mean, literally tore up Israel and Judea, all right? But he took some of the Hebrew people back with him, and some of them were, names were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're all very familiar with them. There was a decree made by Nebuchadnezzar that the people were to bow down to his idol that he had erected whenever they heard the sound of musical instruments. Whenever the musical instruments would play, the people were to bow down to the idol. Well, the king said that, but when the musical instruments were blown, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down to the idol. They stood. When this was told to the king, they were immediately brought to him. Nebuchadnezzar questioned them and said, Why didn't you bow down? The musical instrument was played. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded with this. This is out of the New Living Translation, Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you if we are thrown into the blazing furnace. The God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he does it, your majesty can be sure that we will never serve your gods or worship the God gold statue you have set up. Now, do you notice they spoke with him with respect? When you address a king as your majesty, you are giving him great honor. Notice they do not say to him, you jerk, you think I'm going to bow down and worship your idol? That would be not obeying and also not being submissive. But the Bible teaches us unconditional submission. Even if an authority tells us to do something contrary to written word, we are not to speak to them like they are a bunch of jerks. Are you with me? We are to speak with respect. The result of this was, Nebuchadnezzar had them thrown into the fiery furnace. You all know the story. There was a fourth man, and Nebuchadnezzar clearly saw that God did deliver them, and God brought them out of the furnace and honored the men greatly. Are you with me? Now, look at 1 Peter, the third chapter. 1 Peter, the third chapter. Now, Peter, in this chapter, shows us that submission deals with attitude in addressing wives with unbelieving husbands. Look what he says. 
chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without, without a word be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, I'm, it's really sad to say this, but I have found that there are actually some believing, quote, believing husbands that are harsher on their wives than some unbelievers. I mean, it's, not, it's a very rare exception, but it's out there. But Peter is making the statement that wives, you're to be submitted even to unbelieving husbands. Now, in another verse of Scripture, back over in Titus, wives are told to obey their husbands. So again, not only are they told to obey, but they are told to submit. But look what Peter goes on to say. Verse 2, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Here's the submission. Are you seeing this? Do not let your adornment be merely the outward arranging of the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with an incorruptible beauty and with a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So in other words, Peter then describes what a submitted wife is like. A submitted wife has an attitude of reverence, peace, respect, and she speaks with respect to her authority. Now, I bring this up because of this. I get really grieved when the obedience and submission issue is brought to an unhealthy and ungodly and unscriptural extreme. Are you with me? I'm going to actually read out of this book because I want to make sure I cover every point that you get it. Like most, I have grieved when I've heard stories of women who took the command of unconditional submission and applied it to encompass unconditional obedience as well. I have heard cases as perverse as believe, and I have actually heard these cases, as, as believing husbands who demanded their wives to watch lewd adult videos with them to provide sexual excitement and, and the wife yielded because she thought she didn't have any scriptural recourse. I know of husbands who demanded their wives to be dishonest for them and they did it. I've heard of husbands who have forbade their wives from attending any kind of church services and the wife actually stopped attending. These kind of directives are not to be obeyed as they violate scripture. God tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. God tells us not to steal and to lie. When a phone rings in the house and the husband says to the wife, tell him I'm not home, she can say, honey, do you want me to just tell him you don't want to take your phone call because I'm not going to lie? You know I love you. You know I'm submitted to you. She can handle like that. She speaks with respect, but she's not going to disobey the word of God, the written word of God. Are you, are you here? Let's go further. I know cases where husbands beat their wives and children out of abuse, and the wife covered for the, for the abuse. There are others where children were sexually molested, and the wife did nothing. I actually know cases with people like this. And the reason they did nothing is because they believed they were supposed to be obedient to their husbands. This is a violation of every premise on which God establishes authority, and women in this position need to understand that God would never want them to stand back and to obey and do nothing. If a husband is involved in a life-threatening behavior such as this, a wife should separate herself and her children from him and not return until she is sure there has been complete repentance. Even David, a warrior and a man of strength, did not hang around the palace when Saul was throwing javelins. All right? He left and lived in the wilderness but never lost his reverential attitude towards Saul's authority. And I'm going to be talking about that in about two sessions in great depth. He respected the authority on Saul's life and respected the anointed of the Lord all the way to his death. And I'm going to go through that in detail. So let me tell you this, folks. Do not take the command of God for unconditional submission and pervert it to unconditional obedience. I want to say this again. 
The only time we are not to obey, and the reason Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not obey is because it violated the second commandment, which said you should not bow down to any other gods. Now, I want to actually show you tonight that God actually blesses people when they don't obey authorities, when authorities tell them to sin. I want to show you this. Go to Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 1. Exodus, the first chapter. Are you there? Verse 15, chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was, well, I'm not even going to try it. Let's just say Jane. And the name of the other was Lisa. And <laughs> theologians love it when I do this. <laughs> and he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birthing stools, if it is a son, then you should kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. Now, verse 17 says, but the midwives feared God. I love that. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. They did not obey authority because authority told them to violate I believe it's the Eighth Commandment of the Ten Commandments, which they haven't gotten yet, but they violate the Word of God, which is, Thou shall not kill. Are you, see, are you seeing this? Watch what God did to these midwives because they didn't obey this command to sin. Verse 21. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. God actually rewarded them not obeying the authority's command to tell them to sin. Are you seeing this? All right, go with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts, the fourth chapter. Actually seeing right now that God will literally bless you when you don't obey, when authority tells you to sin, but you keep a respectful, submitted attitude. In Acts chapter 4, are you there? I want to look at the 18th verse. The Sanhedrin called them, and um, verse 18, so they called them, and them is Peter and John, and they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Jesus gave a commandment. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It is written in our Bible. These men told them to do exactly what Jesus said. It told them not to do what Jesus said they were to do. Peter said, whether we obey God or you, please you judge. I want you to see what happens as a result of them obeying the word of God. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. God blessed them with great power and great grace. Now, I want you to also see the attitude that the disciples took towards this Sanhedrin who commanded them not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus. Go to Acts 23. You saw that they did not obey this command, but yet I want you to see their submission to the Sanhedrin. Because, folks, you must understand the Sanhedrin was not only the spiritual leaders, they were the governmental leaders. The high priests were literally like our senators today. Are you getting this? They were not only the pastor of your church, they were your senator. 
Are you with me? Because when Rome conquered a territory, they would allow the conquered territory to continue to govern themselves under their supervision. Are you with me? So here we are in Acts 23, verse 1. Then Paul looked earnestly at the council. This is the Sanhedrin. And said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Verse 2, And the high priest Annas commanded those who stood by to strike him in the mouth. Now Paul didn't like that very much. Verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit in judgment according to the law, and you do command me to be struck contrary to the law. Now look at verse 4 and 5 carefully. And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Now look at Paul's response. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Notice Paul repented of the way he spoke to that man that was in authority, even though the apostles' attitude or, or, or position was, We will not obey their command to not preach or teach in the name of Jesus. Notice the respect the apostles took with that same council. Daniel, the sixth chapter. And look at verse 3, actually. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because of an excellent spirit was within him. Don't you love that? And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Wow, this is a Hebrew young man in the Babylonian empire. Verse 4, so the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the, the kingdom. But they could find no charge of fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Folks, let me tell you something. You are walking the life that God has called you to walk when the outside unbelievers cannot find fault in your life. That is what the Bible commands us in the New Testament. Amen? So you know what these guys did? They said, we don't want this Hebrew kid ruling over us. So they came up with a law that they knew he wouldn't be able to obey. They came up with a law that if anybody was to petition any other god other than the king, they were to be thrown in the den of lions. That's what verses 4 through 10 talks about. Well, I want you to notice verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, isn't this wonderful how the way the Bible writes it? When he knew they signed that corrupt law, watch this, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as his custom was in his early days. Why did Daniel do this? Because Psalm 55, verse 17 says, Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Daniel did what the written word of God said. When the king was told about it, Daniel was brought before him because the king signed the decree. He was very sad about it. Now he would have to put Daniel in the lion's den. He did. Daniel was in the lion's den all night. You know this from your Sunday school classes. The result was the lions did not touch Daniel. The king was delighted to see it because he saw that God had absolutely delivered Daniel and blessed him for not obeying the king's decree. And so then the king put the evil men in. And the evil men who came up with the law were immediately consumed, them and their families, before they even hit the bottom of the den. Isn't that amazing? Now, I want to say something. It didn't always turn out this way. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. If you go to Hebrews 11 chapter, you will see something that is most powerful. Hebrews 11 is the hall of fame of faith. Isn't that not true? But yet, let me show you some of those that got put in the hall of fame of faith that didn't do what some of us today think are feats of faith. 
but they did do what God calls great feat of faith, and that is obedience. Watch this. Verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of knockings and scourgings, yes, and of trains, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Are you seeing that there were times when people did make the decision to obey God, but yet the reward wasn't a natural reward? Are you with me? But let me tell you, their reward is great in heaven, because that's what Jesus said. Isn't that right? An unknown Roman wrote about the believers of his day. This is what he said. This is an unknown Roman back in the first or second century, and this is what he said. He said about the believers, he said, they obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. Isn't that powerful? Those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. In other words, the believers in the early church obeyed the laws, but yet by their lifestyle, they surpassed the laws. That's what that church did when they went to that city and said, we are buying you that mask. They said, we're going beyond this tax law. We want to bless. That's what blows the world away. That's when the world really sees Jesus in it. There's no gray area. I made it very clear that unless that, that if authority tells us to do something that is directly contrary to the written word, we're not to obey their command. Let me give you an example of a gray area. Let's say you work on the staff of a ministry and the pastor tells you he does not want you praying for people on phone counseling calls. I have heard people say this before. Well, that pastor is not doing what God desires. God wants us to pray for people. If they call, I'm going to pray for them. You are in rebellion. The reason is you are being paid to type data entry or file or something else, not to pray for people. Because you are representing that ministry incorrectly and you are not submitting to the authority over that ministry. That is not an example of a pastor telling you to do something that's not in the written word of God. Are you seeing that there's no gray areas in this thing, folks? We are talking about direct going against violation of the will and holiness and word of God. Are you seeing that? That is the only time we are not to obey. Complaining about your leader can set you on a slippery slope to deception. In the next lesson... How could a harsh or corrupt leader actually provide protection for you? How is it possible to be completely right and totally wrong at the same time. How do you respond to and overcome unfair treatment? You're about to discover some principles that can change the entire course of your life. There is nothing we have that God hasn't given us. You see, God gave us grace. Submission deals with your attitude. It is easy to obey God when the sun's shining. There is a secret place under the shadow of the Almighty where there is liberty, provision, and protection. The following 12-part teaching series by John Bevere, along with study guide and a copy of John's book, Undercover, exposes the subtle yet rampant tactics the enemy uses to keep you from the promise of protection under his authority. John Bevere Ministries and Nelson Multimedia Group present Undercover. Are you dissatisfied with your leader? What if you discern he's making a bad choice? How about if his decision goes against what God has told you in prayer? 
These and many more questions will be dealt with next in Lesson 8 as John presents the teaching, What If Authority Tells Me? We've all encountered people who are dissatisfied with their leaders, correct? They complain about ineffective techniques or the unwise decisions that they think their leaders are making and how it neg negatively affects their lives. They complain, I've heard this constantly, they complain that they were promised certain things by leadership, but they are still waiting for it to happen, right? In fact, things to be seen to be going backward. They are certain their pastor has missed it, and now reason that his authority is separate from God. This opens the door to complaining, which eventually manifests itself in insubordinate behavior. It is only a matter of time before they're flirting with deception and lured away from the authority God placed over their lives for their protection. Are you with me? Now, if you really want to see a leader that looked like he was taking people backwards, let's talk about Moses. All right? God is the one that raised up Moses, right? The descendants of Abraham had been tormented by Pharaoh for 400 years, and God appears to Moses on the mountain and says, you're the deliverer, you're the man, right? Here's the signs, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses comes down from the mountain, before he goes to Pharaoh, he first of all stops and speaks to the children of Israel. Look what he does. Look at verse 29 of chapter 4 in Exodus. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. Now look at verse 31. So the people believed. Everybody say they believed. Now watch. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads in worship. Can you imagine what was going on in that room? I mean, there's a multitude of leaders because they're all elders, right? And let, let me tell you something. They've been promised all their life that God was one day going to send a deliverer. But you know what? Their daddy heard about it and he died and never saw one. Their grandfather heard about a deliverer, but he died. He lived his whole life as a slave and never saw the deliverer. Their great-grandfather, he heard about it, but he died. And now here they are. They are looking at God's appointed deliverer. They are pinching themselves going, wow, God is really going to deliver us. And they worship, right? Can you imagine the praise and the worship that erupted out of there? Now watch. Moses leaves them and goes right to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh exactly what God told him to say on the mountain. Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. You know what Pharaoh looks at him and says? So the people aren't busy enough, huh? So they need some more work, right, Moses? Now, I'm going to read to you out of the New Living Translation how Pharaoh responded to him. Look up at me and listen. To which Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Why do you take the people from their work? So the same day Pharaoh increased their hardship, he angrily decreed to his slave drivers, load them down with more work, make them sweat. Now, you've got to understand the life of a Hebrew was they got up at sunset, went to the brick pits, worked all day long, came home, and basically collapsed only to get up the next day and do the same thing. And got nothing for their labor except a slum. No longer would straw be provided already for the overwhelming tally of bricks the Israelites were required to produce each day. They would now have to glean by night and labor by day. So now you can't go home and collapse. You've got to go out to the fields and get the straw because they're not giving it to you anymore. Are you getting this? The total number of bricks could not diminish even though the straw would no longer be provided. The Hebrews scattered throughout the land searching for straw. The slave drivers were br brutal. Backed by their whips, they harshly demanded, meet your daily quota of bricks just as you did before. 
They beat the Israelite foreman in charge of the work crews. Why haven't you met your quotas either yesterday or today? They demanded. So the Israelites' foremen went to Pharaoh. Now listen to this. And pleaded with him. Please don't treat us like this, they begged. We are given no straw, but we are still told to make as many bricks as before. We are beaten for something that isn't our fault. It is the fault of your slave drivers for making such an unreasonable demand. But Pharaoh replied, you're just lazy. You obviously don't have enough to do. If you did, you wouldn't be saying, let us go and offer sacrifices to your Lord. Now get back to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the regular quota of bricks. Since Pharaoh would not let up on his demands, the Israelite foremen could see that they were in serious trouble. And as they left Pharaoh's court, now listen to this. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting outside for them. Then they said to Moses, may the Lord judge you for getting us into this terrible situation with Pharaoh and his officials. You have given him an excuse to kill us. So now Moses is the hero when he has the meeting with him. But he goes and preaches the word of the Lord to Pharaoh, and his preaching brings greater hardship on their life. So what do they do? They get so angry when they see that it's all because of Moses' preaching. They look at him and say, may the Lord judge between you and us. They call divine judgment on Moses. They now are separating Moses' authority from God's. Are you seeing this? They think, well, look what you have done to us. Now, God finally does deliver them, right? And let me tell you, though, before he does deliver them, you know what the Bible says five times? One, two, three, four times, five times. It says this, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. The more God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the harder it got for Israel. But God finally miraculously delivers them, correct? They come out of Egypt. They're excited for a short time, only to find out they are brought out to a land that is vast, all right. It's a good, it's a big land, but it's got no bread. It's got no crops. It is a wilderness. And they think, you promised us a land flowing with milk and honey. Now they're furious with Moses. Because now he has brought them out of Egypt. First of all, they were backed up by the Red Sea and thought they were going to be killed. Now they get through the Red Sea, and they've had nothing to eat and nothing to drink for three days in the wilderness. And they think, you know, Moses, we had food in Egypt. We had meat pots. We had fish pots. We had vegetables. We don't have anything out here. We thought Pharaoh was harsh. You're sadistic. You're killing us. You brought us out here to starve. Don't you remember they said all these things? You have brought this entire assembly out here to starve us to death. You're cruel. So now, you know what they say? Let's raise up a leader and go back. At least under Pharaoh, we had something to eat. At least we were going to live. This guy's brought us out here to kill us. He thinks he's a god. Are you beginning to get this, folks? I mean, Pastor Moses wasn't doing a very good job. If they were to judge his leadership ability by his results, he would have come out way short. Are you with me? And all he was doing is what God told him to do. It was not Moses. It was God that was orchestrating these circumstances. Because they get out into the middle of that desert. I want you to go to Exodus, Exodus the 16th chapter. They are just furious with him. Exodus 16. 
Look at verse 2. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained. Everybody say complained. Would you look up at me? Complaining is a form of rebellion. Complaining says to authority, I don't like what you're doing, and if I were you, I would do it differently. That's why God hates it. The whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against who? Against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. But look what Moses goes on to say in verse 8. And Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Moses made it very clear. You know who you really complain against? Now, now the children of Israel, they said they were complaining against Moses and Aaron. And Moses made it real quick. He said, you know who you're really complaining against? It's not me. It's God. They didn't have the guts to complain to God. But they had the guts to complain to their leader. Are you with me? If Moses would have been judged by them at this point, because you know what? He brought them three days into the wilderness. They had nothing to eat or drink. And then they finally came to Marah. When they came to Marah, there was finally some water. And they were so excited. They were saying, okay, maybe things are going to turn around. And then they found out the waters of Marah were bitter, and they couldn't drink them. They had had it. They said, we're going back. Are you with me? If Moses would have been judged according to their standard, he would have been a failure as a leader. That's what so many people today judge their pastors and other leaders that God puts over their life. God orchestrates things in their life, maybe kind of tough, difficult situations. And they think the whole fault is my leader. It's not the fault of your leader. Do you think he's that powerful? To ruin your life? Joseph said to his brothers, it wasn't you that sent me here, it was God. And Joseph's brothers said, we're going to kill him and keep him from the call of God in his life. Nobody can get you out of the call of God in your life. No man, woman, child, or even leader can get you from the call of God in your life. The only one that can keep you from the call of God in your life is you. The children of Israel got offended with their leader and complained. It kept them from the promised land. That's the only one that can get you out of the will of God. No leader can keep you from the will of God in your life. If you get a hold of this, you're going to get free. But somebody says, but what if I discern? If I was the children of Israel, I would have been more like Joshua. Well, don't be so quick to say that. And I have to remind myself of that because it's real easy when the books are written and the story's over to look back and say, I wouldn't have done that. Because somebody says, well, you know, I would have been discerning like Joshua. Let me tell you something. Joshua was not obedient because of his discernment. He was obedient because he understood the principle of submission and obedience. That's why he had true discernment. That's why he realized Moses was God's sent man. There are people today constantly in church saying, I discern, I discern, I discern, I discern. But many times it's just a criticalness. Anybody can be critical. All you have to have is two eyes and a carnal brain, and you're, you're, you're critical. But yet they say this is discernment. That's not discernment at all. Are you with me? Now, what if you say, now listen, what if I discern that my leader is not making a very good choice? Should I still obey him knowing that he's headed for misfortune? Okay, are you with me? Should I still do that? Well, when I was youth pastor, and my pastor made the decision to cancel our youth home groups that I'd worked on for seven months, there was another element in there. There was an administrator that was out to get me. His son was in my youth group, and he didn't like what I was preaching. So he started a campaign to get me fired. And so what happened was, when I went into that meeting, I thought that what he had done is that he had twisted the ear of my pastor, my senior pastor, 
and give them information that helped to make them make a, 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 a bad decision. For that reason, I was still unwilling to yield to my pastor's authority, and I argued with him for 20 minutes in that meeting. But let me show you something that God showed me shortly after that. Look at Proverbs. You're in Proverbs 21. I want you to go there. Look at verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, God turns it wherever he wishes. Now, you know what the Bible says right there is the person that's in authority over you, the king, that's the person in authority, his heart's in the hand of the Lord, and God can turn it whatever way he desires. God doesn't say the king's heart is in my hand as long as he's not been wrongly influenced or as long as he behaves a certain way. He says the king's heart's in my hand no matter what. Now, I know that brings up a real question in you. What if we're not just discerning? What if we really, really know that authority is making a bad decision? What if we have concrete evidence that the leader was influenced by an evil report? Is there no recourse? Can't we do something to help? The answer is absolutely yes. If you look at the life of Esther, Esther was queen to the Persian king. There was an evil man named Haman who wanted to kill all the Jews. He came up with a decree that every single Jew should be slaughtered on a certain day. Esther was queen, and Haman did not realize that she was a Jewish lady. Mordecai, Esther's cousin or uncle, comes to Esther and says, Esther, you have got to go before the king. But Esther says, Mordecai, if I go before the king and he doesn't point his scepter at me, my head comes off. Mordecai said, but Esther, you've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther makes the decision, goes before the king. When she does, the king has, sees her with favor and points his scepter at her and says, Esther, what do you request of me? And Esther said, please come to a banquet. The king comes to a banquet, or, or, or excuse me, the night before the king comes to the banquet, the scribe is reading to the king all the chronicles. And in the chronicles, the king is told about a man named Mordecai, excuse me, named, uh, yeah, Mordecai, who saved the king's life. The king said, did I do anything to reward him? And the man said, no. The scribe said, no. Then king went to Haman and said, Haman, what should I do? And Haman thought the king was talking about him. And Haman said, you should honor him and put him on your best horse and parade him around the whole city. And so the king says, good, I want you to do it and you be the one to lead him. I want you to lead Mordecai around. Well, he's furious about this, right? But Haman thinks, all right, he's going to be killed. But what God is doing is God is already preparing the heart of the king for when Esther approaches him. So on a second banquet, Esther comes before the king. And the king says to Esther, Esther, and Haman's there. Esther, what is it that you want? Now listen to what Queen Esther says. This is out of the New Living Translation. Listen to this. And so Queen Esther replied, if your majesty is pleased with me. Now remember, she's speaking to her husband. And wants to grant me my request. My petition is that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If, now listen to this, if we had only been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. For that would have been no matter, that would have been a matter too trivial to warrant disturbing the king. That's Esther 7, verse 3 and 4. Can you see the way she spoke to him? She doesn't look at her husband and say, you jerk, don't you realize this guy misinformed you and you are now killing a bunch of innocent people, including me, your wife. That's not the way she speaks to him. She speaks with a submitted heart and she petitions him knowing that he doesn't have all the information. And when he sees it, he says, forget the Jews and puts Haman to death. The very thing that Haman devised in them, that's what happened. 
But I want you to notice Esther did approach the king because she knew he did not have all the information. But she spoke with respect. This was totally different than what I did when I was sitting before my pastor and arguing with him for 20 minutes about the home groups. Are you seeing the difference? I have a policy with my staff. I tell my staff, if you see that I don't have information on a decision, you may come to me and petition me and give me that information one time. If more information comes up after that, come back and petition me again. That's fine. But once I give a decision, we're going that direction, and we're all going to go together in one heart, in one mind, in one accord, whether I've made a mistake or not. Well, what if a leader's making a decision before he has all the facts? Here's another incident. David with Saul. Remember this? David goes to Saul. They're fighting the Philistines, the giant. Goliath comes out for 40 days, and David goes to the king and says, I'll kill him. And the king looks at him and says, you kill him? Now listen. David then petitions the king and entreats him as a father. Everybody say, entreats him as a father. This is the way you address authority. When you speak with respect, you address them as a father. You never rebuke a father. David didn't look at Saul and say, come on, Saul, where's your faith? Don't you have any more faith than this? God gave me the paw, the lion, and the bear. This king's nothing. That's not what David said. He spoke with great respect and said, Saul, O king, the Lord gave me the paw, the lion, and the paw, the bear. I know he'll do the same thing. And Saul saw the faith. God turned his heart, and the king said, go get him. Are you with me? Are you seeing this? All right, now I want to come to the big one. This is the one I want to spend some time on. What if authority tells me the opposite of what I felt to do in prayer? Are we on the same page? Are we all together on this one? What if authority tells me to do the opposite of what I was shown to do in prayer? How do we handle that? Well, let me go back to the party program. And remember I told you this morning God spoke to me and told me to do it? Remember I even told you that God gave me the plan on how to do it, how to choose the leaders, to train the leaders? And I had even told my pastor in the parking lot. And then seven, eight months later, after eight months of work, he came into a pastor's meeting and said, Gentlemen, the Holy Spirit has showed me the direction of home church is not to have home groups. I want you to cancel all your home groups. And I argued with him for 20 minutes. I was so passionate, number one, because I thought he was wrongly influenced, and number two, God had spoken to me in prayer. That's why I fought with my pastor so, so intently. But now let me tell you something, folks. God tests us. Do you know what a test is? That is when God tells you to do something that he doesn't intend for you to do, but he tells you to do it just to see if you'll do it. Genesis chapter 22 verse 1 says this. God tested Abraham. Right? How did he test him? He said, I want you to take your son, and I want you to go three days' journey to the Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. You know what the Bible says? Early in the morning, Abraham rose up and went. He didn't wait three or four months. He went immediately. Abraham went all the way to the place where he lifted up the knife, was ready to run the knife through, and the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Stop. Now I know you fear God, because if you weren't, if you didn't withhold the most valuable thing in your life, I know that you'll obey me in everything. 
In 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, look what Paul said to the Corinthian church. Now, Paul was an authority in this church. He was the senior pastor of this church. And to be very scriptural about it, he was the apostle over this church. And Paul wrote this letter, and look what he said in verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He said, for to this end, everybody say to this end. Now, would you look up at me, please? What does it mean when somebody says to this end? He's saying for this purpose, the whole reason I told you to do this, watch this. For to this end, or for the whole reason I told you to do this, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, what Paul is saying to them is, I gave you a command in the first letter to do something. And I gave you that command for one reason, to see if you would do it. Because Paul gave a very difficult command, and that in itself carries something. If we're able to do the most difficult thing God asks us to do, then that means we'll do anything. Those parties to me represented eight months of work. To me, they represented the success of our youth ministry, and they also represented young people coming into the kingdom of God, which I was so passionately wanting to see. But God said, I want the thing that is the most important thing in your ministry, the thing you've worked the hardest on. I want you to give it up, and he spoke it through my pastor. Why? Because I believe God told me to do it in prayer because he knew he would tell my senior pastor a few months later to tell all of us not to do it because God wanted me to see if I would recognize his voice in the voice of my senior pastor. God did it for one reason, and that was to test me. God did speak to me. He did tell me to do it, but he fully knew what was coming down the road. He wanted to see if I would give up that Isaac. It was the most important thing in the youth ministry, and the Lord knew if I would submit to his authority on that issue, I would submit to him in, in anything else. And the area he was testing me in that particular time was delegated authority. I had already gone through another test on his direct authority a couple years earlier. I fully believe this, folks. God will test you in both areas in your life. He will test you on his direct authority, and he will ask you for the thing that he actually promised you and you waited for. Because let me tell you something. God did not tell Abraham to put Ishmael on the altar. Ishmael is what you birthed in the flesh. God said, I want Isaac. The very thing I promised you and you waited 25 years for and you love very much. Then he tests us with delegated authority to see if we see his authority in the delegated authority. In Numbers, the 30th chapter, I want you to notice the second verse. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Would you look up at me? Do you know how important it is to God that when we make a vow, we keep our vow? I, I, I want to show you, actually, put your marker there. I want to show you Deuteronomy 23. Go there real quick. Let me show you how important it is to God. Look what verse 21 says. God says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and would be sin to you. Everybody say sin. sin. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. 
Verse 23, that which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Do you see how serious it is? If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it says, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to have vowed than to have vow and not pay it. Now, do you see how serious a vow is to God? Do you see this? Say amen if you do. I want you to see something. Go back to Numbers 30, and I want to show you something most interesting. Numbers chapter 30. Are you there? Look at verse 3. For if a woman makes a vow to the Lord, now remember how important the vows are, and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house, in her youth, and her father hears her vow, and the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all her vow shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. Verse 5, but if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand. The Lord will release her because her father overruled her. Do you see the importance that God puts in delegated authority? The vow that is so important, God says when she makes the vow, if her father overrides it, the Lord will not hold her to it because her father's overruled it. He goes on to say in the next several verses, if that woman gets married and she makes a vow and her husband hears the vow, if on the day that she makes the vow, he overrules the vow, she shall not be held accountable for that vow. She's released. When God entrusts his authority to somebody, he doesn't take it back. I'll never forget the day when the Spirit of God, I was in prayer, and he said, Son, you must understand, when I give authority, I am not like some who takes it back when I don't like the decisions people are making. He said, because if I was that way, I would have jerked the fruit right out of Adam's mouth and said, what do you think, or out of his hand before he ate it, and said, what do you think you're doing? You're going to cause suffering to come on all of humanity. And you're going to cause my son to have to come and die for this. He let him eat it because God said to Adam, you rule the garden. He gave him authority in that garden. And God did not override the authority which he gave to Adam. When God makes a man, a husband over a wife, he does not overrule that authority. If that husband says that vow is overruled, then the very vow that is so important to God, God says she's released. If you want to know the truth, it is the exact same way with all authority. If your pastor comes to you and says this and this and this, then let me tell you something. You can just say, all right, Lord, this is what my pastor said. I am submitted to your authority. If he's not saying what's right, then, Lord, that's between you and him. But as far as, Lord, I, my relationship with you, I'm obeying your delegated authority, and you'll never be able to say to me, I didn't obey. That's the kind of attitude we've got to have. Unless, and I want to say it one more time, Unless authority tells you to do something that is contrary to the written word of God. That is the only time we are not to obey. What good does suffering unfair treatment from leadership accomplish? Why didn't Jesus protect himself? These questions and plenty more will be answered in the next lesson by John LeVere called...
We're getting late here, so I'm going to, it's about 10 after 8 right now, so it's a little bit late, but uh, it was very good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. He went over some difficult questions that we've all, we've probably all experienced. <laughs> Lord, I just pray that you'll be with us tonight, and I pray that uh, your truth will be welded into people's hearts, and they will read the word as those who are submitted and those who care about what you think. So, Lord Jesus, we ask you to, to be with each one of us and help us to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. 